Hello, and welcome back to Twin Paradox. I'm King Everett Medlin, and what you're hearing is a sci-fi trilogy I wrote four years ago under the pseudonym Purple Hazel. Twin Paradox follows my first podcast series entitled Death Walker Colony, which is now a full-length novel available for purchase on Amazon. It's on sale today in ebook format, as well as the first two books in the Rigel 12 series, The Rise of New Australia and Return of Anarchy. You can check out those, as well as some of my earlier works, by going to the link provided in the transcript for this podcast. Tonight we continue with Part 2, Pioneers and Explorers. We've already met some of our main characters, and tonight we're going to meet some more namely two of the space twins eventually selected for the mission. So far, we got to meet Kelvin, the handsome Virginian who's good with the ladies, Gunther, the soft-spoken German whose father is a government official, also BJ, the lovely math whiz from Colorado whose brains and good looks are only matched by the young woman's limitless sex drive, and finally Robin, the flamboyant transgender from East Atlanta who introduces the concept of the Twin Paradox. Twin Paradox is a sci-fi series encompassing three full-length novels, all of which will be read in their entirety during the coming weeks. You can go online and download the e-books, or if you prefer, tune in each week and listen to me read them to you. So let's keep going. Ladies and gentlemen, Twin Paradox Part 2. Pioneers and Explorers. Chapter 7. Three Adorable Pairs. May 2086. It had been months since the official announcement, along with the unveiling of the new Santa Maria Galactic Exploration Vessel. The media covered the event daily thereafter, thrilling the public with imagery of the ship's designs, details of crew functions, accommodations, as well as descriptions of the ship's anticipated mission protocol. Meanwhile, the ongoing search for just the right set of identical twins was coming to its conclusion. Sure enough, Gunther's father had embraced the wild idea proposed by his son and his companions back at Magellan Aerospace. Conducted in secret, upon direct orders from Space Program Administration, the worldwide investigation into orphanage, workhouse, and foster home records was a daunting challenge that staffers recruited for the project came to loathe. Their searches took them far and wide, all those eager individuals assigned to the experiment. Administrators hired 20 to come work for them at their Research and Technology Center in Nordvik, just a few miles southwest of... Amsterdam. Yes, Amsterdam. It was still above water, having seen an 84-centimeter rise in sea levels during the past six decades, yet able to cope due to its elaborate systems of pumps and dikes. Kelvin and BJ initially jumped at the chance to go, imagining occasional road trips up to the city to buy hashish. Unfortunately, no such offers came. Neither stood much of a chance passing the drug screening required for agency employment anyway. Thus, they had to settle for slaving away several more months at Magellan while those diligent staffers combed through millions of birth records identifying eligible twins. 
Gunther's father had certainly done some broken field running with the concept, originally taking his son's idea of one set of identical twins to use in the experiment. He subsequently expanded it to three. Three adorable pairs, as he put it. He also took Kelvin's advice, stated in his and Gunther's original message, to focus their search on city kids, as most people had come to call street urchins abandoned by poor families or seized from irresponsible parents by authorities. City kids was a derogatory term that some, especially older folks, had come to use when referring to these unfortunate children. Yet it was the easiest and most obvious choice to provide a wide selection. After all, the government already had a massive database. It was busy work, really, not the type of thing Kelvin and his friends would have enjoyed, even if Gunther was technically wired for it. Gunther just didn't have the communication skills necessary when it came to young children. His father knew better than assigning him. No, Gunther was not selected either, and of course Robin wasn't about to apply. Robin rather enjoyed his comfortable little job at Magellan. He was more than happy to remain in the shadows whenever Kelvin and Gunther wrote that email. At Magellan, there was one staff meeting a day, and that usually was virtual. Robin could simply log on to it from his digital communication device, or DICE, as folks called them. It all came down to getting his projects completed. If he finished a section of code and it was only 1,400 hours, he could simply knock off for the afternoon and make his way up to Centennial Park, maybe hang out at the observatory and smoke a joint or two while he looked out over the city. And for his part, handsome Kelvin wasn't much interested in an administrative role. Kelvin wanted a spot on the crew. And to be fair, he knew it would be a tall order, regardless of how he tried going about it. It would require having a powerful connection somewhere in the GU, for one thing. Plus, it might involve passing a rigorous examination, a physical fitness test, maybe enduring a litany of psychological batteries to determine mental stability for such a long, grueling mission. That posed a potential dilemma for the young man. Could he really go through all that? Could he get straight and stay that way for a full month, maybe? Get in shape? Get healthy? No problem, he'd say whenever BJ posed that question. And he meant it, too. For Kelvin was one of those individuals who knew his path in life at nearly every given moment. Never doubted what he wanted or exactly how to get it. That is, once he had set his sights on something. That's why he quickly began lobbying Gunther to get his father back in Darmstadt to let Kelvin pay the fellow a visit, in person, at the Space Program Operations Center later that year. He also planned on bringing a guest. Kelvin knew in his heart having BJ along would come in handy. Wasn't sure just how, but he figured it certainly couldn't hurt having the brainy brunette on hand in case he got in over his head, which was typical of the wavy-haired fellow. BJ was a good wingman, always had been. As for BJ's sentiments regarding flying off to Germany with him, hoping to lobby for a spot on the crew, she'd see it as a nice little vacation, he had to assume, a chance to hook up with German dudes for a change. That was basically how Kelvin pitched it to her. She couldn't resist. Fuck yeah, I'll go, BJ replied when asked, if Gunther's father agreed to meet with him, that is. Kelvin, as always, had no doubt he would, and booked them two flights to Frankfurt. From there, it would only be a short drive south to Darmstadt. 
Meanwhile, the search for the three adorable pairs of twins was truly a massive undertaking. The 20 staffers assigned to it pored over medical records from orphanages and researched live birth certificates to identify the top 100 prospects based on acceptable demographics. From there, they narrowed their search until they had selected three top finalists, thus leaving only one remaining challenge, and that was to go out and meet with them, decide which of the siblings to bring along on the mission. First off, they wanted healthy children with no birth defects or maladies. Next, they wanted an assortment of cultural backgrounds. After that, it was merely a matter of tracking down the children to the workhouse, farm, or orphanage where they now resided. The target age for the mission was 10, give or take a year, just so the twins would have had time to develop together and take on common traits of twins such as matching mannerisms and style of dress. Thus, another essential criterion for the selection was twins who had never been separated since birth, yet were somehow available to be used in this bizarre experiment. That's what made the search so difficult. Luckily, the first of the finalists to be inspected were located a mere train ride from their offices in Nordvik. Starting off, the staffers traveled by train through the Channel to England and investigated a pair of twins currently living at the Brixton Workhouse for Girls in London. These facilities offered primary education in exchange for a six-hour workday usually involving light assembly or domestic duties at various locations within the city. Nearby companies could contract with Brixton, and after their morning studies were completed, the children would be sent to their daily work assignments. Donations from companies often ensured priority in having access to the healthiest kids, but otherwise any legitimate business could apply for this cheap supply of labor. The twins selected from London were actually of African descent, both of them beautiful girls, straight from the dark continent where their parents had fled recent famine in Zimbabwe. Their father had been killed in a street altercation shortly after arriving in London when their mother was pregnant with them. Therefore, their mother was deemed unable to raise them properly, according to authorities. They'd been taken into the child welfare system and were now living in rather drab conditions at this, one of London's more notorious facilities for orphaned girls. Their names were Shimiso, which means a great wonder in their native language of Shona, and Rudo, which means love. Shimiso and Rudo Cachote. One look at them, plus watching them playing together out on the schoolyard, and the staffers immediately knew these two girls were special. At first blush, it seemed the two were inseparable. Shimiso followed her sister around constantly, like she was some dangling appendage. Rudo, on the other hand, was loud, had a deep voice, which would increase several octaves if she grew excited or angry. The section supervisor pointed this out early on. The supervisor also emphasized, when interviewed in person, that Ruda was typically the instigator among the two, the leader in getting the two of them into trouble on occasion, committing mild infractions like smuggling food to their beds at night and other such acts of rebellion, as she called them. What's more, Ruda was the scrapper among the two and would beat seven bells out of any girl or boy who bothered her and Shimiso. Space program staffers appreciated this bit of information greatly. Ruda was already starting to look like the better prospect between the two. 
a brave individual who had a sense of responsibility for her more reserved sibling. That said, it was Shimizu who possessed the brain for science, they soon came to discover. Administering aptitude tests to the girls ultimately revealed this fact and soon changed their opinions of which twin they'd like to take. Aptitude tests were done on portable digital devices, nicknamed PDs by English kids years ago, and it eventually caught on. These thin, flat, flip-open computers were perfect for recording test scores and displaying questions or problems for a child or preteen to solve. To further replicate a normal testing situation, staffers from Space Program had the supervisor set up a regular classroom scenario. With the entire group of girls in her section, a little over a thousand of them it turned out, to sit for this supposed exam. Of course, it was quite real, this test being administered to the girls, and the PDs performed all the work of eliminating children of lesser intelligence quite smoothly and efficiently. At the conclusion of each section, some taking as little as 20 minutes and others much longer, the PDs would message the student informing them either that they had performed adequately or, if the child's scores were unacceptable, it merely thanked them for participating and directed them to return their device to the proctor. Because of this, the room slowly dwindled from 1,006 young girls ages 9 to 11, all the way down to 25, and within just a few days... Those eliminated were simply sent back to their employers or given the rest of the morning to play outside in Brixton's large, fenced-in schoolyard until transports arrived to whisk them away to their assigned work sites. Meanwhile, those who continued to pass and advance to the next more difficult levels were kept indoors day after day, kept together and separated from their friends playing outside. With time, they were moved to a more private facility for more intense examination downtown. Shimizu, to the surprise and delight of the staffers, was one of those final 25 who were still testing at the level of English six-formers. What's more, some of them, Shimizu included, were soon tackling university-level science and math problems. Sure enough, Shimizu Cachote was just what they'd been looking for. Rudo, by way of comparison... She, unfortunately, was eliminated within the first day of testing and whisked away to a factory in town where she worked on an evening cleaning crew. This had been the first span of time lasting more than a few days that she'd been separated from her sister since they were babies. Nevertheless, when the finalists were moved to a hotel in downtown London where they could live like rich kids, room service, comfortable beds, clean towels, clean bathrooms, delicious food, Shimizu seemed transformed. It was easy to see in her demeanor. More outgoing, more expressive, and far more confident she became with each passing day. Perhaps, observed the staffers, Shimizu became a different person whenever Rudo wasn't around. This they felt they should verify, so during testing they went back and consulted the section supervisor and learned even more about their bright new prospect. According to the tough old gal running the place, Rudo was to Shimizu, much like Kryptonite was to Superman. Rudo was the loud, boisterous, outgoing type, the evil twin. In her absence, Shimizu became more of the reserved, introspective type, educated, informed, mature. Maybe, they speculated, she'd be the kind of girl who would blossom in an environment such as a space exploration vessel hurtling through the galaxy toward Captain B. 
growing into an adult during the mission and playing a vital role in its ultimate success. However, everyone knew what this would mean. The two would have to be separated, and that was going to be a challenge. Shamisa was clearly the one they wanted, and yet, how could they do this to the poor girls? It perplexed the young staffers and brought up an even deeper moral issue that none of them had considered or, for that matter, openly discussed among themselves up to that point. Even if they could pull apart these identical twins who'd spent nine-plus years together every waking moment of their lives, then what would happen to Rudo Cachote? What would become of Rudo now that her identical twin would be leaving? They never objected to this moral quandary back in Darmstadt when they were in the presence of their superiors. They didn't dare complain. This job, this internship for all intents and purposes, to go out and recruit three pairs of identical twins and decide which among the two was right for the mission, it was a great opportunity, a segue perhaps to a lifelong career with the GU space program from which they could support themselves comfortably and eventually retire. Full benefits and health coverage, two weeks paid vacation every 12 months, They all wanted something like that, especially given the likelihood that space program would be expanding for decades to come and become the catalyst for the next economic expansion. Therefore, they had to ask themselves, why rock the boat? But it had to bother them thinking about it, this idea of separating identical twins and basically abandoning their earthbound sibling. A life of hard knocks and brutal reality for one, but for the other girl... Adventure and wonderment exploring the galaxy. That said, Space Program, and Gunther's father in particular, had already addressed this issue long before when setting out the prime directives for their mission. First off, the Earth Twin could never find out what had happened to their identical sibling. That was of the utmost importance. Once separated and a plausible story had been concocted, only then could the Space Twin be told of their mission. Those were the rules. After that, the two could no longer see each other, not for many years, at least until the ship finally returned to Earth, however long that took. The second issue was what to do about all those who knew about the experiment and had participated in the process. What about staff and administration at the orphanages and workhouses? What about all those people left at these places who might later tell the Earth twin of their siblings' true destination? The answer to this was easy. They were to be bought off, incented, and yet also warned to keep it a secret all the rest of their days. The orphanages and workhouses would get a large government endowment in the form of a deposit made into their bank account that would be equal to their average operating budget for the past five years. Also, any staff aiding space program staffers would receive a bonus and in each case a government accommodation of a sort that most everyone craved. Each section supervisor, administrator, or overseer assisting in the process would receive, after signing a confidentiality agreement that was filled with warnings against breaking their silence, a guarantee of full government retirement benefits starting at age 55. Now that was something practically no one could turn down. Indeed, all of them leapt at the chance to essentially check their morals at the door and sign on to help in any way they could. In 10 or 15 years, depending on their age, to be able to simply walk away from all those moldy dormitory halls and bratty, stinky kids, that was irresistible, even if it was blatantly unethical. 
After all, separating identical twins from each other would have far-reaching, perhaps even devastating effects on each sibling's individual development. No one needed an advanced college degree to know that. Monozygotic twins are formed in the fetus from a single egg, or zygote, which splits and forms two embryos. Twins, whether monozygotic or dizygotic, i.e. fraternal twins, occur on average 33 out of 1,000 live births, but identical twins are the rarest, most often female, because male embryos are more susceptible to dying while in utero. Monozygotic twins have different fingerprints, and though genetically very similar, they are not genetically the same. Not exactly, that is. This becomes more prevalent over time because there will also be epigenetic modification caused by environmental influences throughout the twins' lives. This term basically means activity of particular genes. Genes can be switched on, switched off, or left dormant in an individual. Same thing with twins. Rudo Cachote was different than her sister Shimiso due to not only the environment they had to survive in, but also the way she chose to react to it. Shimiso, by way of comparison, had her twin Rudo to pummel or put the boot in any girl or boy daring to bother them out on the streets of the city. Without Rudo present, Shimiso was easily mistaken for her tough-as-nails duplicate, thus Shimiso was free to more fully develop other parts of her intelligence. That's how each twin had affected the other's development while growing up. Now the only remaining question was just how would Rudo develop without her beautiful sister to look out for and protect? What would this do to her personality? How would this affect her own IQ development, not to mention her future? What might she become someday without Shimiso constantly tagging along, always by her side, balancing her emotionally, and giving her responsibility for another human being? Unfortunately, these challenges were no one's affair but Rudo's, at least according to program directives. The staffers were directed to inform her that her sister was going away to live with another family for a while, as they put it, and eventually the two would be reunited. That's all they were allowed to say. It broke the hearts of staffers to have to lie like that, especially to an innocent little girl who had done nothing to deserve what was about to happen to her. There was no way to rationalize it, no way to live with what they were doing. This was not a matter of international security for the future of mankind. It was just a scientific experiment being conducted by sober, intelligent, otherwise moral men and women back in Germany who felt this somehow needed to be done. Thus, poor Rudo was going to be on her own. And when the two parted, it was a very teary, heart-wrenching scene to be sure. For Rudo, this was the last of her family, being spirited away in that solar transport lorry one drizzly London afternoon following the final day of testing. Shimisa was merely told she was being moved to a program for smarter kids who showed an aptitude for applied sciences. Shimiso said nothing in response to this barefaced lie. She just stared out the back window of the van with her hands pressed up against the rain-streaked glass. Rudo, meanwhile, stood on that lonely, wet sidewalk until the vehicle had completely disappeared down the street. Thank God we only have to do this two more times, muttered one of the staffers. A few others heard the young woman say this and sighed or nodded in silence. Devastated by the experience, none of them spoke about it again for the rest of the drive out to Heathrow.
Next, the young staffers traveled all the way down to South Texas, near a city called Katy, which was just west of the original site of Metropolitan Houston. Here they investigated a very strange set of circumstances indeed. Back at the Research and Technology Center in Nordvik a month earlier, they had come across a pair of twins which had shown up on government records eight years prior. Live birth certificates indicated they were 10 years old, in perfect health, and up to that point in time no physical maladies or defects had been identified. They seemed healthy and vibrant enough to go interview, decided the young staffers. Seemed like a couple of boys strong enough to endure the strain of a deep space mission. Strong and athletic, no doubt. What a gross understatement that was. Ranger Battalion, was what their little league coach called them when referring to the Guerreros. He was the first to greet the staffers at Houston Hobby Airport and the one driving the van which drove them out of the terminal. He was also more than happy to tell the team of young scientists all about their two prospects they'd journeyed all the way across the Atlantic to meet. Any team they ever played for not only won but won big, they were told on the drive. Championship after championship. They were freaks of nature, the coach was bold to say, and identical from head to toe. Practically interchangeable. Could hardly tell them apart since the day they got here, he claimed. Their names were Proxidus and Oswaldo, the Guerrero twins. Any sport, any position, they quite literally dominated the field from whistle to whistle. During the long drive through the South Texas countryside, he detailed for the space program interns everything he thought they needed to know, like he was some high school football coach entertaining a group of college recruiters. Well, Proxidus can throw. Oswaldo can catch pretty much anything you throw at him, he said. Oswaldo can kick. Proxidus can elude tacklers like he's a greased pig. Proxidus can outmaneuver defenders on the soccer pitch, while old Ozzy, he can pretty much outrun anyone, except Proxidus, of course. And what's more, he's got the endurance of a goddamn marathon runner. In the traditional American sport of baseball, they were fantastic position players as well as devastating hitters. Proxidus could pitch and throw blazing fastballs. Oswaldo was a phenomenon in the field, chasing down fly balls and heaving the ball from the warning track all the way to home plate, on a single bounce, whenever base runners attempted to tag up and steal home on a sacrifice fly. On top of that, he could do this at only 10 years of age. Of course, that's on a Little League ball field, added the coach. But hey, let me tell you, I ain't seen nobody do that before I met these kids, that's for sure. He could kick, too, added the fellow, and in European-style soccer, Oswaldo was a fearless goalie. But when it came to megaball, which had evolved from combining the very violent and injury-plagued American sport of football with the more skill-oriented sport of English rugby, that's where both boys really stood out. Proxidus and Oswaldo were already up-and-comers, playing on the 12-year-old team, which was the maximum age limit for their orphanage. And on Katie Boy's farm, located just outside the little Texas farming community of 250,000 people, both kids were being groomed to become stars in the sport someday. A woman named Rotella Coronado ran the place, it was learned, and it had been servicing the community for over 40 years. It functioned as a cotton farm during the week, but... Come Saturdays, it was more or less a sports boot camp for future high school athletes. That was the reputation they had garnered over the years, boasted the big man. 
Yeah, see, if you're a tough city kid and lucky enough to get sent here, if you're coachable, willing to work hard, I mean, we'll get you onto one of our sports teams and, whew, boy, the sky's the limit. That's why most of the schools around here don't like playing us, was how he put it. How in the world could a place like this exist? Those young staffers from Europe could only wonder. Only in Texas, perhaps. But what had happened with Katie Boy's farm was simple, really. Starting in the 2070s, several former megaball players who had retired from the professional league came to work there as youth counselors. That was their official function, that is. Back then, Coronado Plantation typically had several hundred city kids, male only, sent there each year. A rudimentary education was provided until boys turned 13, when they were tested for mental aptitude and released into society. Yet this was also a working farm. Hours of strenuous labor in the hot Texas sun and plenty of free time on weekends with nothing else to do but play sports. It was quite easy to test various athletic-looking boys to see if they possessed any dexterity for sports. That's basically how it came about, and that's also how the Guerreros had been discovered. They'd been there since they were toddlers, and now they had both developed into strapping ten-year-olds who towered over most kids their age. The staffers from Space Program knew they'd have a tough time deciding between the pair. But the solution, once again, was to try and test them out on applied sciences, really the only way to differentiate them, so to speak. Physical fitness was obviously not going to be an issue. They could readily see without even having met them. Oh yeah, there's no question about it, quipped the colorful coach. They're tough little bastards, let me tell you. Between the two, it was almost a dead heat during that long week of testing. Once again, the GU staffers showed up with their PDs and packed a large gymnasium with school desks to test all kids between the ages of 9 and 11. And, once again, this was merely a ruse to see how the two boys fared in such an environment. Could they concentrate? In a massive room packed with several hundred boys their own age? In that stifling South Texas heat with air conditioning units pumping full blast just to keep the temperature and humidity bearable? It was an ordeal, especially for the staffers stuck with proctoring the exam. Yet Proxidus and Oswaldo hammered through the first day with flying colors until the room's population of sweaty, annoyed 9, 10, and 11-year-old boys had dwindled to less than 50. After that, the remainder were taken from Katie Boy's farm for another week to undergo further testing. The Guerrero's coach, Dustin Dusty Kenefick, was only vaguely accepting of this interruption to their studies, as he referred to them. Clearly, he was referring to them missing afternoon practice, but there was no use in arguing the point. Not that he didn't try. Why, y'all thinking these boys are what? Good at math and shit? Scientists someday, maybe? The staffers chose not to belabor the matter. Just let the facility administrator, Rotella Coronado, pull him aside and have a little chat with the barrel-chested fellow. She had no problem setting him straight, of course, knew just what was at stake. After that, Dusty Kinefick was completely on board. The staffers, it turned out, had promised Mrs. Coronado a rather genuous endowment toward the improvement of her sports facilities, paving the way for her plantation out west of New Houston to be transformed into a real bona fide sports academy. She and her beefy youth counselors could then train hundreds of future Guerrero brothers with materials and equipment like that of a major suburban youth sports program. What a fortune they might make, 
if one of their charges made it into the professional league someday. They'd need an agent, wouldn't they? How could Coach Dusty argue with something like that? In the end, however, it was the young but not-so-little Oswaldo who made the cut. He and five other boys finished the entire program on their PDs and demonstrated a deep understanding for scientific concepts, despite the very basic education taught to them on Katie Boy's farm. Proxidus, for his own part, got pretty far into it as well, but when the exam delved into more complicated natural sciences and physics-related problem-solving, he simply couldn't handle it. His brother Oswaldo advanced into the final day of testing. Proxidus was eliminated. It was the first time in his young life he could ever recall being bested by his twin brother. Once again, the staffers had the twin they wanted, and had to separate one from the other in such a way that no one suspected anything or asked too many questions. That's why they wisely delegated the unenviable task to Coach Dusty, charging him with explaining to Proxidus that his twin brother Oswaldo, or Ozzy as he liked to call him, would be moving on to another boy's home, and maybe someday soon you two will get to play each other. Who knows, bro? It was a good lie, if there was such a thing, the young staffers had to admit. They couldn't have thought up something better, that was for sure. Therefore, when the two boys parted, out front of the local hotel where the finalists were staying, he bravely bid farewell to his brother. I guess I'll see you on the field then, pussy, said Proxidus with a macho grin. Oswaldo chuckled and playfully punched his twin brother in the chest. Proxidus roughhoused with him for a bit, then pushed him away as Oswaldo turned to load up onto the van heading out to Houston Hobby Airport. He then waved goodbye as the shiny vehicle, all covered in solar chips and glistening in the afternoon sunlight, rolled away with a whining, whirring sound. His brother waved back to him through the rear window. Yeah, bro, I'll see you on the field someday, he mumbled to himself. He couldn't possibly have known just how long it would be before that day would come to pass. This concludes tonight's podcast of Twin Paradox Book 1, Chapter 7, Three Adorable Pairs. I hope you enjoyed it. Watch for Episode 8, which I'll be posting very soon. I wrote Twin Paradox Books 1, 2, and 3 four years ago under the pseudonym Purple Hazel, and each book in the trilogy is organized into parts. What you've just heard is the second chapter of Part 2, Pioneers and Explorers. The entire trilogy can be found by googling Twin Paradox Purple Hazel. Book 1 is on sale for $3.99 on Amazon. Buy it today, or if you like, just tune in each week and listen to me read it to you. Also, and don't forget, my latest full-length novel, Deathwalker Colony, is available right now in ebook format and can be downloaded today on Amazon.com. Along with the first two books in the Rigel 12 series, the Rise of New Australia, and Return of Anarchy. A link to these, as well as some of my other works, can be found in the transcript for this episode. I'm King Everett Medlin. Thanks for tuning in. Chapter 7